You are listening to Fellowship Around the Table. All right, welcome everybody to the weekly chat. I'm here again this week with Scott Johnson, and we are continuing week two in our discussion on the book of Job. I have to ask, we really laid out the, the framework and your love and history with this book and started to kind of show the framework of why suffering. Mm-hmm. But before we get into more of that today, I have to ask, where did you go to seminary? I have no seminary degrees. He's zero. And when did you learn Hebrew? I know about three words, and they're all from the Blue Letter Bible. And how long have you been in full-time ministry? Well, then that's a little bit of a tricky <laughs> it question. It is a trick I, question. I would say for a long time, but I know. I, I've never been in paid vocational ministry, never, ever. So I'm, I'm a business guy. I know. Those were joke yep. questions, I yep. guess. But do you feel presumptuous? teaching a book like Job without all of the proper qualifications? In some ways, Heath, I feel presumptuous every time I teach. (laughs) I really do, because I I don't have the qualifications. What I do have is a love to understand things that God gives us, Mm -hmm. and I mean insights and, and perspective and things like that. And when I get to a certain point where he's given me enough on one thing, it accumulates and becomes a talk. Yeah. This, because I know you so well, and I know the love that you have for this book, the the time you've invested in it and and what's come out of that, I've gotten to see the the fruit of all of that, that God's blessed. This to me is one of the prime examples in my life of that Hebrews passage, that he is a rewarder of those who seek after him. Yeah. And I'm convinced anybody, anybody that knows Jesus Christ, if they will seek after whatever it is from his word and him revelation about him, he will just continue to reward them with more and more and more. That sort of gives me goosebumps as I'm sitting here because I can tell you God does that to me all the time. Mm. I I shouldn't say to me. He does it for me. God does that for me all the time. And it's... I mean, just being honest about it, as I get older, I've always I've always cried easily at poignant things. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. But as I get older, I, it gets worse. But it's but to me, it's a blessing from God. I feel close to God mm. when those things happen, and I've I would say I've cried many times thinking about the in, in, an insight that God's just given me in this book, and God, I would say, has dropped many tons of bricks on me. Mm. And those aha moments, and in more for the book of Job than probably anything else that I teach. Mm, I love that. Lots of tons of bricks. Well, back to Job. Who is this guy? What do we know about him? So this is a fantastic question. So in Job chapter 1, verse 1, the author, and we're not sure who the author is, the author tells us that Job is blameless, upright, he fears God, and shuns evil. So blameless, upright, fears God and shuns evil. And then shortly after that, God himself is speaking in Job chapter 1, verse 8. And God says exactly those same four things. He's blameless, Mm -hmm. upright. He fears God and shuns evil. And then God adds, there is no one like him in all the earth. And that effectively, we can paraphrase that by saying that what God has stated is Job is his number one guy. Mm -hmm. In other words, there is no one better in God's eyes than Job. 
Now, he's not sinless, and yeah. I don't think anyone's really saying he's sinless, but he's way up there. Do, peop, do you hear that, though? When you, when you hear the word blameless, I think people might think perfect, sinless, but that's not what that word means, right? Well, we know – here's the thing. We know that it can't because we know that no one is sinless. Right. And at the end of the book, and I don't want to give too much away yet, but at the end of the book, Job is going to understand that he's a sinner. Mm. But all during the book, he does maintain – his righteousness, I would not say, in my view, that Job claims to be without sin. Yeah. But he does know that he's a pretty good guy. He doesn't have any idea that he's God's number one man, but I think he knows he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, I think with with further revelation, when you get to the Mosaic Law and the laying out of that, God really seems to draw a distinction with presumptuous sin, mm-hmm. which is what we use the language in our English of first degree Mm-hmm. You plan it out, you premeditate it, and you go commit it knowing that it's violating something. Yeah. And to me, blameless implies that Job did not participate in presumptuous sin. You know, I had never really heard that definition. I th- I really like that, and I would tell you, I think it is spot on with respect to Job. Mm. Okay. Yeah, and, that, and that's – I pray that prayer that David prays, protect me mm-hmm. from presumptuous sin. Yeah. Yeah. So basically volitional sin. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's really good. Okay. At the beginning here, this is something that a lot of people either find fascinating, I think really struggle with, and that is, I've heard you say that God and Satan have this cosmic conversation. Yep. What's going on there? It's a mind bender. Yeah. And here's an interesting thing for me, Heath. Early in my years as a born-again Christian, as a Bible, sort of Bible-based evangelical Christian, Mm -hmm. I remember hearing many times from the pulpit from from pastors that I would still love today. But I, I remember hearing many times, God cannot be in the presence of sin. He can't tolerate sin. I've, I've heard that. But I, but I think we know that's not true because, for example, the Holy Spirit indwells us and we are still sinners. Hmm. So clearly God is in the presence of sin. Now, God himself obviously has no sin. He's the exact opposite of everything that sin represents. But in this particular case, the book is very clear in both chapters one and two that the sons of uh, the angels, is how I interpret it, the angels come to see God, and then Satan also comes with them, and they have this conversation. So that's a mind-bender to begin with, that they are just chatting with each other, and it, it doesn't. it appears to be just sort of a chat just like you and I would have. And I'll paraphrase it and just say God basically says to Satan, hey, you know, what you been up to? And Satan says, oh, I've just been wandering around the earth checking everything out. So I, I have an odd sense of humor. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. But, that, but that line, I don't know why, but it, it kind of makes me laugh. It does. It does. Ah, <laughs> uh, what have you been up to? And it's, it's not like God doesn't already know anyway. Right, right. Right. I've just been wandering around. That's right. So, you know, what you've been up to? I've been wandering around checking everything out. So this is another ton of bricks right at this moment, Heath. Mm. So, so many people believe that Satan said, let me go mess with Job. You know, so that Satan brings his name into the conversation. Yeah. One of the first tons of bricks God dropped on me, it may have been the first one, was that God brings Satan, brings Job's name into the conversation, not yep, Satan. Not Satan. So Satan jumps on it right away and says, I want to mess with this guy. But God says, have you considered my servant Job? Mm. And it's in that, it's in those statements that he says he's blameless Upright, he fears God, shuns evil, and there's no one like him in all the earth. So that kind of addresses – one of my questions is why does Satan pick on Job? And I think 
I'm rem- I'm reminded when you said that that that's not the case, but I think I do walk around this framework that Satan comes with the idea of picking on Job. So and and he jumps on it. Yeah. Right when Job's name is mentioned, that's the next thing he does. <laughs> yeah. But God brings Job's name into the conversation. Oh wow. Yeah. And clearly, clearly, he brings him up because he's his best guy, because he's his number one guy. There's yeah. no other possible explanation. Yeah. So. If we go back to Job's friends who we talked about last time who believe Job is a train wreck and he's had all these terrible things happen to him because of his great sin, really, we know this. And, and I think we have to be very careful with Job's friends. They're, they don't have the benefit of this conversation. Neither does Job. Nobody on the earth knows how this thing got started. Yeah, We know as we read the book that God brought Job's name up and that he singled him out as his best guy. And then Satan asked for permission to mess with him. Mm. And by the way, I love to I love to explain it like this. So God says, "Well, have you considered my servant Job? He's my best guy." Satan, I'm gonna I'm gonna grossly paraphrase this, okay. but I'm gonna try to make a noise that I hope comes through the podcast. Satan's <laughs> answer to this is, yeah. right? P F F F F. And basically, he says, "Well, yeah, of course he's your best guy. I mean, you gave him all this stuff. Anybody that you bless like that would worship you. But if you take away all this stuff, he won't be your man anymore." Mm. So. Well, finish that thought. So what roles did God versus Satan have in inflicting these troubles upon Job? Right. And I think this is a key point in the book, and I'll probably mention this again later on. God is absolutely complicit because he's brought Job's name up, Mm -hmm. and he gives Satan permission to go mess with him. Now, he sets a limit on it. He says, you can take all of his stuff, but you cannot touch the man's body. You can't mess with him physically, but you can take all of his stuff. So God is complicit. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But Satan sort of does all the dirty work. Satan goes and, and destroys Job's life, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, let me come back to God's, the way I say that he's complicit. We have to remember that God is, is allowing, even approving this suffering for Job for his own purposes. We, I think, can sometimes have a tendency to believe that all suffering is bad and there can't be any good come of it. Mm-hmm. We're reading the book today, thousands of years later, yeah. because God allowed this to happen. And the book is super meaningful and super relevant today, regardless of how old it is. So it isn't that there's no good that came out of this. And I, I worry about people who, who I would describe as sitting in judgment on God for singling Job out and then giving Satan the permission to do it. But Satan does all the dirty work. Mm. Well, I've heard you say that, you know, that we learn some very important things about our adversary, Satan, we do. in this book, which, I mean, frankly, in the whole content of the revelation in the Bible, there's not gobs and gobs of information about him. This one has more than most for sure. That's right. So what what do we learn about so him? So I think, I think there are several things. Number one, I think most important, is God is clearly in control. Hmm. So Satan can do nothing outside of what God allows him to do. This is clearly not a, a dualist theology where the good and evil are competing with each other and who might win. Correct. And it, it's not the force where there's a good side and there's a bad side, <laughs> right. but they're equally powerful. Right. There's no comparison here, and that's that's totally not reality. Yeah. So in both chapter one and chapter two, God gives Satan permission, but he sets clear limits and boundaries for how far Satan can go. So in chapter one, he says to Satan, okay, you can you can go take all of his stuff, but you can't touch him. 
In chapter 2, Satan comes back to God, and they have this conversation again, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And Satan is again given permission by God. He says, okay, you can touch his body this time. You can afflict him physically, but you cannot take his life. Mm. So there's no question about who's the boss, who's in total control. There, there is no negotiating. There right. is no, Satan will not be able to breach the line that God has set, the boundary that God has set. That's very clear. So I think there's a huge lesson for us in knowing in no uncertain terms that God is the boss between those two and God is in total control. Yeah. Number two, Satan has no integrity. Hmm. So this is maybe a little hard to wrap our minds around, but in chapter one, remember God says, if you considered my servant Job, and Satan says, Pff, yeah, exactly. exactly. Let's do it again, Heath. One, two, three. <laughs> okay, so Satan says, of course, he, of course he worships you. Look at all the stuff you gave him. Yeah. Everything, all the work of his hands has flourished. He's, he's grown important. He's significant. He's wealthy. If you take all the stuff away, he won't worship you anymore. So God says, very well, you can take his stuff away. You can't touch him. In chapter two, Satan comes back to God. And God says the same things about Job. Now, this is after Job's lost all of his stuff. God says he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he shuns evil, there's no one like him in the earth, and he maintains his integrity. Now, this means he maintains his faith in God, mm. and that's really important, and we'll cover that, I think, at a later time in our, in our discussion. But he maintains his faith in God, even though, Satan, you incited me to ruin him without cause. We're going to touch on that again later on, too. Yeah. So Satan, again, this is fascinating to me, and we learn so much from Satan's response. He again says, right? He again says, of course, all you let me do was take his stuff. Yeah. You didn't let me touch him. Now, I want you to think about this. In chapter one, Satan says, well, if, if, you, if you take his stuff, he won't worship you anymore. In chapter two, what he doesn't say is he doesn't say, well, you know, yeah, you were right the first round, but let's, let's go a little further. He doesn't have any integrity with what he said already in chapter one. He comes back and he says, well, of course he still worships you. You didn't let me touch his body. Do you see what I'm saying? I, uh, yes. <laughs> in chapter one, he says, if, if we do, if we take his stuff, he won't worship you anymore. In chapter two, he says, of course he still worships you. All we did was take his stuff. So he doesn't even have any internal integrity with himself. Mm. I mean, theologically, he's the father of lies, which means the ancestor, the originator. He's the seminal inventor. He's a creator of lying. And it's really his native language. I want to give. I want to just stop there and tell you how helpful that is for me. Growing up, my mom and now my wife says it all the time. They they say I have justice issues, mm -hmm. and I do. I get really fired up at injustice, but but definitely things that are illogical or not consistent or maybe lack integrity. But they're yeah. they're just. It, I see this all the time in our culture. Somebody will make an argument about something that, uh, you know, I think violates God's word. And then they'll make another one. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they can't even agree with themselves. And they're all over the place. And right. I get all fired up and my wife will go, Heath, <laughs> why do you expect them to be consistent? And then I didn't get to come, was traveling for work, but you gave a talk about our adversary yeah. this past fall. My wife was there and she came home and she's like, You've got to hear this. This is going to help you. They they are like, in a sense, they're acting like Satan. He's the father of lies. There's no yeah. internal consistency. Yep. And that's that's how it is when you deviate from 
from truth, capital T truth. Yes. And, you know, I, I wonder if you get, and not to spend too much time on this, but if you get as incensed as I do about, I don't even call it the war in Ukraine. I call it Russia's unprovoked aggression. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. It's it's not, they, they've created a war, fair yeah. enough. But it isn't like the two sides disagreed about something. It's completely unprovoked and for no good reason. And I have to be careful not to think of the Russian people but to really put it at, at Putin's feet. Yeah. And I am incensed by his whole attitude. Every time I hear uh, some translated comments from him, I think exactly what you're saying is complete nonsense. And not consistent within itself. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. it, I, I don't need to get as riled up because I, I, sh- I shouldn't expect maybe anything different. <laughs> on, on, on top of that. I've gotten to the age, and I don't successfully manage this, Heath, all the time. <laughs> I've gotten to the age where I realize getting riled up about something I literally have no influence over mm. is not really a productive use no. of the Christian life. That's right. And so that's a real challenge for me, but I'm, I'm getting much better at that. That's really good advice. Yeah. Well, I think there's another thing that you want to say about Satan. He's no integrity yes. with himself. Well, that God is in control is the key part. There's no integrity within himself. That's right. And then... That's what exactly else about right. him? He's our accuser. So in Revelation, mm, yeah. uh, John is shown a vision and the and one of the people, I assume they're angels, explaining some of this to him says, he he's the accuser who used to accuse believers basically day and night. Mm-hmm. So he was thrown out of heaven, but this is a future thing that happens. So what we see in Job is exactly that playing out. He's accusing Job before God. He's basically saying to God, yeah. well, of course he worships you. You gave him all this stuff. And then in chapter two, of course he still worships you. He still has all of his health. Yeah. So he's accusing Job of being fickle, of only doing it because he's benefiting from it. And that if you just take these things away, he will turn away from God. Yeah. And he's, he's doing that. I, I mean, I think that's his full-time job right now, basically. And capital B, but. We have an advocate. That's right. Hmm. That's exactly right. I love that. All right. In chapter one, Satan, we've talked about it here, but Satan wipes out all of Job's stuff. Explain that. Okay. So there's, this is really fascinating, Heath. And I I love the fact that, I mean, everything heats up almost immediately in this book. Yeah. I mean, in one chapter, Job loses all of his stuff. Now, the stuff is defined in three rounds. He has three different kinds of livestock. And then he has 10 children, seven boys and three girls. The children, by by all evidence in the book, love spending time with each other, and they love to get together and have a party, for lack of a better word. They're festive, and, and they have lots of occasions to get together and have a feast together. And so I love the fact that these kids have been raised by this wonderful man and his wife, and they love spending time together. Yep. So Job is in chapter one just having, let's just say, an ordinary Job day. I don't know if it's morning, afternoon. I don't know if he was inside his house, if he was outside, if he was working, if he was sitting back soaking in the sun. I don't really know. Hmm. But he's having an everyday Job day. And all of a sudden, a messenger comes to him. No doubt the messenger is out of breath because he's going to deliver a message that the livestock where he was have all been completely wiped out. And he's going to say at the end of his message, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. So this messenger comes up bringing this bad news about part of Job's livestock, part of what we would call his business holdings. In his wealth. His wealth. That's exactly right. The text, and this is so fascinating, Heath, tells us that while the first messenger was speaking, so let's say as he was finishing 
his message, which is pretty short. It's like, hey, the part of your flock that I was with is gone. And I'm the only person who's escaped, you know, alive to tell you. It says, while he was finishing that up, the second messenger came. So he reports on another set of Job's livestock as animals. He says they're all wiped out or they're stolen. There's various things that happen to them. Basically, they're gone. You don't have them anymore. And again, he says, I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. So these guys are out of breath. There's a sense of urgency and despair in their voices and in their faces and in their messages. The third one says exactly the same thing. While the second one was still speaking, a third messenger arrived. And he says, all these animals are wiped out. So effectively, Job's got three different kinds of animals, different numbers. All of them have been wiped out. Mm. The fourth messenger fourth. arrives <laughs> while the third messenger was still speaking. Wow. And his message is the most dire of all because the first three you might recover from. You might rebuild. You might call in a couple favors and get some animals and start breeding again. The fourth messenger comes and says, your sons and daughters were having a party. And a wind came and blew the four corners of the house inward. In other words, the house imploded on mm. itself. And they've all died. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Now, when I do the class, I have four people volunteer to be the four messengers and read okay. these messages. And I tell them, look, the text says that while one messenger was speaking, the next messenger came. So as soon as number one's done, I need number one number two to start, yeah, and then number three and number four in rapid succession. I've, a couple times, Heath, I've, and I have someone time it. A couple times the time has exceeded one minute, but typically the time to read these messages is between, let's say, 45 and 55 seconds. Okay. So literally, essentially, in less than one minute. Now, these events happened, right? The animals were wiped out or stolen, and the kids, the kids, the house imploded on them. We don't know exactly how that timing happened, but what we know is the messengers basically converge at about the same time in rapid succession, and in less than about one minute, Job's life is over as he has known it. He's alive, but the life that he's known all this time is over. He's lost all of his business, all of his financial security, all of his wealth, and he's never going to recover from the news that his 10 children have all died. Yeah. And yeah, and we've been using that word stuff, and he did lose his stuff, but he lost all of his children. That's right. And let's not forget that Job's wife bore those children. That's right. Wow. Well, I want to keep going, but we're out of time again this week. <laughs> I, so I don't know if that's an interesting note to end on. This but, is a good cliffhanger. It because, is a cliffhanger. Yeah. He loses all his wealth, all of his financial security, all of his business, and all of mm -hmm. his children. Yep. Mm. Wow. You're going to join me next week. Yep. We're going to continue on. Looking forward to enjoying it. Enjoying these conversations and, and getting a lot out of this. I appreciate it. You bet. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining Fellowship Around the Table. If you'd like to learn more, go to fbctulsa.org.